Welcome to the Decent Crypto Podcast. Today is September 26th, and we are back. It's been a while, Matt. How you been? So we're going to get into the L2s today. Um, all right, Matt, what, can you actually, let's start at the, the most basic level. Can you define an L2? What is a layer two? Should we, I mean, should we take it from why, why does this exist or do you yeah, want to start yeah. with the, all right. Okay. Let's start, uh, let's start with, let's start with the fundamental question of this podcast. Why, why does this actually exist? Um, layer twos exist because Ethereum is not scalable, right? Um, and so forever we've had sort of different approaches to scaling Ethereum. One of them was dank sharding. Um, so under that regime, we were going to have different ledgers that sort of cross communicated and eventually reached settlement, um, and sort of like lots of different like shards of Ethereum. Um, sorry, that, that's just sharding. Um, then we moved on to sort of more of like a layer two centric approach to Ethereum. Um, and that's sort of like the one that everybody's kind of like landed on. And I think Vitalik kind of coined this, right. As like the layer two centric vision of Ethereum scaling. Um, and, but the, the fundamental issue is that Ethereum doesn't scale very well. Um, you hit. And what does that mean? So like, does that just mean that you can't have a very high transaction uh, throughput, like you can't have very many transactions per second, or does that mean that it gets too expensive, or does it mean both, or why exactly is that? Like, why does Ethereum not scale at the base layer? Uh, Yeah, so with Ethereum, you have a huge number of nodes in the network, right? And with every block, you need to cross-communicate that block's worth of transactions to a whole bunch of different nodes. There are 400,000 validators on Ethereum, right? Not every single one needs to know about every single block every single time. Um, but you know, as you scale the number of validators in the system, some fraction of them does need to know about every single block at every single point in time. Um, and so you have this like peer-to-peer communication issue, which is that as the number of gr- nodes grows in the network, um, like the number of edges between those nodes grows exponentially. Um, and so Ethereum is super decentralized, and that's by far its most valuable attribute. Um, But as a result, uh, things like communicating blocks across different validators goes very slowly. And it's built to be very safe, right? So that like this cross-communication is pretty much guaranteed to happen for any block to be finalized. Um, But uh, at the same time, like it means that inherently you're throttled in terms of the amount of, it's not just transactions per second, uh, although we kind of use that as a heuristic, it's really gas per second, right? That's Mm. the way to think about scalability. The amount of compute, the amount of logic that can happen in any given block is capped. uh, And that's expressed through gas. So gas measures the like computational, the amount of computation happening um, within each transaction. And the total amount of gas per block is capped. Um, and so what you get to is like a fee market, right? Where basically you say, look, I'm willing to pay more to cut the line. And I think that the Ethereum fee market is a beautiful thing. 
right? It's like, you should be able to pay more to cut the line, right? It creates like a very basic market for getting your transaction included in a block. Um, obviously at the core, it really doesn't work that way. Most block producers are seeking MEV and stuff and most blocks are produced like one block at a time and they're not based on like this, this market anymore. Um, but, but at a fundamental level, when a lot of people want to transact on the network, there's not enough space in the blocks to, keep, to include all those transactions. And so you wind up with a fee market and that can make gas very expensive at times, right? Um, so if a hot NFT mint is happening and yes, that has happened before in the past, it, it may never happen again. But um, if a hot NFT mint is happening, gas can spike like crazy. If a lot of people want to trade a shitcoin, gas can spike. Um, generally, whenever people are putting a monetary premium on getting their transaction included in a block, that makes the whole network more expensive for everyone. Um, and so, you know, this all this goes all the way back to Bitcoin, right? Um, where we had like a fundamental limit on the amount of data that can be included in a block, uh, the number of transactions that can be included, and yeah. um, and that led us to the block size, <clears throat> right, with Bitcoin Cash which was like, the whole approach was like, if Bitcoin is gonna become like this monetary system, we need to be able to include more transactions because the global monetary system has a lot of transactions per second. Um, it's a very similar thing with Ethereum, right? We can't really make bigger blocks. Um, so we need other ways to scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about those other ways. So there's the, there's the approach of, look, Ethereum itself is not going to scale. We need a different blockchain. We need something that at the base layer is just going to be infinitely scale, or not infinitely, of course, but just very scalable on its own. Um, and that's just going to be a completely different ecosystem. It's going to require its own kind of set of liquidity. It's going to have its own applications, all that kind of stuff. Um so that's just like you're looking at Solana and um, AVAX, uh, you know, Avalanche, and you're looking at um, kind of the whole gambit of new L1s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is the roll-up approach or kind of the, just the, the layer two approach. So what, what exactly is that? Um, yeah, so I think um, if you think about Solana, and we kind of covered this in our deep dive, it's very heavily optimized to be what it is, right? And so speed is sort of like prioritized uh, at all costs. And sometimes it's at the cost of like stability of the network, right? Um, it has ways of like, instead of every validator knowing about every transaction um, and there being like a public mempool, it's more like, the only the validators that are including blocks or up to include blocks next, they're the only ones that know about pending transactions, right? So, um, so that's that's like one smart way of splitting it up. Then there's this proof of history thing where like when you broadcast the the block that you're producing, you don't do it all at once to every node in the network. You do it piece by piece to lots of different nodes, and they sort of peer to peer to each other. Um, but uh, you know, like I said. Um, the, the problem with Solana is, look, it's still in beta, right? Because it does break sometimes and sometimes the network goes down, right? Less and less, but it's still a risk. With Ethereum, I think the stability of the network is something that's broadly been more prioritized. Um, and so, you know, its mechanism of transaction and block 
propagation is less uh, is lower throughput, right? But it's much more stable. Um, and with solutions like you know Avalanche or Cosmos or Polkadot or whatever, generally you're doing some kind of hard cap on the number of nodes in the network. So with any kind of like tenement based consensus, that's anything in the Cosmos ecosystem, right? Um, and a bunch of others that have like forked off of it. Uh, you're limiting yourself to 100 to 200 validators at the most. Compare that to Ethereum's 400,000. It's probably more now. Um, that that figure is months old. Uh, and what you get is a much less decentralized system, right? Yeah. Um, so I think like what Ethereum is prioritizing here, right, is decentralization and stability of the network over throughput, right? Um, and it's basically saying that like the, the layer two vision of the world is like, we can have sort of side blockchains, right. That extend off of Ethereum, um, that settle to Ethereum that can move much faster because they're much more centralized and the user can kind of decide to what degree they want to take the risk of interacting with those things. Okay. I see. So in a way, these layer twos are they are the point of centralization in a way and you kind of say that i'm going to trust this one entity or this one kind of cluster and uh stay within the ethereum ecosystem which in itself is way more decentralized rather than the approach of have one system that's semi-decentralized um yeah, and when you think about centralization, it becomes important to think about like what specifically about centralization are you bothered by? And we'll get into this a little bit when we break down the different kinds of layer twos, um, but I think it's important to keep that in mind, right? Like decentralization is not like a goal in and of itself, it's a means to several ends. Um, and so what most layer two architectures are trying to do is solve for, um, for, the, for those risks so that you can be centralized but not expose users to the risks of centralization. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get into it then. So let's talk about how these layer twos actually work. Um, so you mentioned that they are built on Ethereum. Um, they have kind of somewhat the security of Ethereum. They kind of inherit the security of Ethereum. At least that's how they, they claim to operate. So, um, yeah, let's talk a, a super high level. Like, how does this exactly work, right? Like, let's say you want to um, use one of these layer twos. What exactly are you doing at a transactional level, like at a transaction level, like to actually get there, right? There's like something that you have to do to basically move to a completely different ecosystem. Um, so like, what does that process entail? What's happening on chain? Um, how do these two chains interact with each other? Yeah. Um, so I think, um, I think the, the, the best way to conceptualize this is to really look just from Ethereum's perspective, right? Like according to Ethereum, what's actually happening, right? Um, because all layer twos kind of have this baked in assumption of like only Ethereum counts. Everything else is to a degree, quote unquote, like not real, right? Um, and, and so what are the real things that are really on Ethereum? Well, you have a contract and this is like a deposit withdrawal contract, 
it holds a bunch of assets, right? So to bridge your assets to the L2, the first thing you do is you send your assets to the deposit contract. Let's call it Ether for now, right? Um, so you send one ETH to this deposit contract, right? Um, when you want to get that ETH out of the deposit contract, um, you're going to need to hit one more contract, which is the verifier contract. And it, it dictates the rules for who's allowed to withdraw assets from the deposit withdrawal contract. So um, the important thing here, this is like the, the, the most crucial part of the system is this verifier contract because it decides who is allowed to withdraw assets on the ETH L1. And the ETH L1 is the only thing that's really quote unquote real. It's the only thing that counts. It's the only thing that matters is like, do you get to take assets out on the L1? Um, so, uh, so you deposit your assets, right? And then there's another blockchain and that's the layer two blockchain, right? Um, and it can be running a bunch of different kinds of virtual machine. Um, we'll get into those in a minute. Um, but basically it executes a whole bunch of logic. It takes a whole bunch of transactions and a whole bunch of blocks. It bundles them together and then tells Ethereum, hey, I have all of these transactions. Some of them are withdrawal transactions. Let those ones happen. Right, and so you go to your to your verifier contract on Ethereum, and you say, "Hey, you know, three people want to withdraw Ether, um, and they each have balances, as you can see here, uh, and they're allowed to do that. So go ahead and let them withdraw their ETH, um, and then those users can withdraw their ETH from the deposit withdrawal contract. So the flow is something like deposit the assets to the deposit withdrawal contract." do a whole bunch of like logic or whatever you want on the layer two. And then the layer two tells Ethereum, hey, look, like you you should let these people withdraw this much assets. That's like an okay. what it is. It's like, you can think of it as a kind of like compression, right? Where um, you, you you open a tab effectively, right? And you, you put your card down to open the tab. Um, that's like going to the deposit withdraw contract. Uh, and then you do a whole bunch of logic. In this case, you order 50 beers, right? And then um, you drink them, you have a great time, and then you go to settle up, and um, and then your card gets closed out, uh, and then you walk away with your card. That's sort of yeah. the, the way to think about it. Okay. Um, so I think it makes sense like why you would want this right um i mean if you want to perform any transaction over and over if you want to do a bunch of complex transactions um it just makes sense to have as low gas as possible if as long as you trust that that you know your funds will always be there so like what kind of assurances do you have that whenever you call the withdrawal function from that contract on ethereum that you can do that at any time like how how do you make sure that this is uh i don't know like your your funds or your funds are safe yeah. uh for lack of a better word yeah so i i think there's two angles here right there's like am i going to be able to withdraw my assets when i want to and we'll call that like a form of censorship resistance right um and then there's uh, like, is someone going to be able to take out assets that they don't actually have the right to take out, 
right? Um, because these contracts are sitting there, they're effectively huge honeypots, right? They like the deposit withdrawal contract just holds a fuck ton of assets. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so you need strong safety assurances that like no one's going to be able to get to take those out if they don't have the right to. Um, mm. So, um, so the first thing we should break down, I guess, is the censorship resistance angle. And in order to do that, we probably want to break down sequencers. So okay. when the logic is happening on the L2, right, the transactions are being added to blocks on, on this secondary chain. Uh, and then, and, and someone's got to do that, right? Yeah. Um, we call this a sequencer because they're basically listening for transactions, sequencing them and including them into blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, today, the way that every layer two on the planet works is a centralized sequencer. Mm -hmm. Um, and we don't love that, right? Uh, so, um, so let's take uh, base as an example, right? So Coinbase mm -hmm. is operating this like super beefy server that's listening for transactions. And as it hears them, it includes them in box and it creates new box in the chain, right? Um, but like, what if Coinbase didn't like you, right? Um, yeah. What if, uh, you know, what if like you have a loan outstanding, right? And, uh, and you want to pay it back so that you don't get your collateral liquidated, but like Coinbase just doesn't let you. Or what if Coinbase has a loan outstanding and they just don't include the liquidation transactions? All of mm. this is like dangerous territory. Um, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, what if you just have assets on there and you want to withdraw them to the ETHL1, uh, but Coinbase doesn't let you submit that withdrawal transaction? Um, this is a risk, right? Um, and, and so there's kind of, uh, I think like two steps that people are taking to mitigate this. Um, mm -hmm. the first one is called forced transaction inclusion, right? Um, okay. and so what forced transaction inclusion does is it lets you send a transaction on the L1 to be included on the L2 and interesting. And, and this is like enforced by the verifier contract. So if that L2 ever wants to like settle up to Ethereum or, or let anything happen on Ethereum on the L1, yeah. the verifier contract has a rule. It's like, yo, you're trying to tell me about a bundle of blocks here, but they don't have the transactions that are forced included. So you can't submit that bundle. Like if you want to submit a bundle, you have to include the forced inclusion transactions too. Um, Got it. And so that, yeah. And so that basically gives you the assurance that if there's any transaction that anybody really wants to get through, they have the ability to do so without the permission of the centralized sequencer or without kind of their ability to stop it. Yeah, exactly. And and now this can this can to a degree lead to some form of spamming. Right, because it does effectively halt the the L two chain, right? Um, because the L two chain, like when you submit a transaction to the L two and it's being included in a block on that chain, it's not really considered finalized, right? It, it's not considered finalized until like once more the real world of Ethereum recognizes it, right? Um, it's not final until it's in Ethereum, um and that's what it means to inherit the security of ethereum right is that like your transaction eventually does get committed down to the l1 um even if that's like in some kind of compressed format right um yeah so um 
so but you know so to a degree like there's it, there's a, a capacity for spamming but on ethereum it just costs too much to consistently submit forced inclusion transactions over and over and over again and eventually the sequencer will include your forced transactions um but okay. that's kind of been an area of research so far and i think the l2 ecosystem the different l2 ecosystems are in different states of readiness for this um i believe polygon either has it or will soon have it on rzkvm um but this is definitely nice. like a, a priority one kind of feature for us because yeah you know if we're going to operate with a shared with a with a centralized sequencer like you have to have forced transaction inclusion or else like there's no guarantee that you'll ever be able to get your funds out um mm. because, you know the deposit the withdrawal contract is governed by the um by the verifier contract right um and so what does the other kind of uh, state of the world look like where you don't have a centralized sequencer? Like how is it going to work? Or does any kind of uh, L2 have a plan for what a decentralized sequencer uh, kind of state of the world will look like? Uh, yeah, I think I think different uh, different people have different views on this, right? So to a degree, a large amount of the efficiency improvement that you see from L2s actually does stem from having that centralized sequencer. Um, and so mm -hmm. you definitely don't want to be like trading off sequencers every block, right? Uh, because as you know, uh, as the number of sequencers increases, you run into the same scaling issue as Ethereum, right? Um, so what generally people are talking about is epoch-based epoch uh, sequencing where if you run a sequencer, you get to make the blocks for a certain number of blocks um, or for a certain amount of time um, before it switches over to the next one. Um, and th there are different uh, groups kind of tackling this. One of them is called Espresso. I think it's probably the, the most well-known one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so uh, this is kind of theoretically where the like value accrual will exist for the tokens associated with layer two networks for Optimism and Arbitrum and probably ZK Sync, right? Um, the idea is if you wanna uh, if you wanna have decentralized block production, we already have a great way to do that. It's called proof of stake, right? And so um, you'll still have ether as like the gas token, but your staking token will either be OP or ARB, ARB, ARB um yeah <laughs> async token or whatever and and polygon has the option to include this in, in polygon 2.0 you can stake pull um to operate decentralized sequencers and and so the idea is um if you misbehave as a sequencer like you double sign or whatever then whatever token you're staking gets slashed um and right. in return for operating the sequencer you get a couple of nice things here you a you get mev Right, you are literally the same. Yeah, yeah. You you sequence transactions, uh, and you get to include whatever you want, right? Um, in whatever order you want. Uh, B, um, you get uh, you get transaction fees, right? So sequencer revenue is actually super super uh, lucrative. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think Coinbase is doing hundreds of thousands of dollars a day with Base, and it launched like a month ago, right? Um, and these revenues come at very high margins. So it's if you look at Arbitrum, for example, like they're getting like 60, 70% margins on this because 
they take in fees, and even though these, those fees are very low, they take in a lot of them, right? Um, and then the only like expense that they have is submitting the the sort of settlement transaction down to Ethereum. Um, mm. So you pay ETH gas costs, but it's bundled among so many transactions that you can reach 60, 70% margin on that. It's a very profitable business. So you generally want to operate one of these sequencers, right? But yeah. it'll, it'll look something like staking one token to receive Ether, which is like, I think a different business model than we're used to when it comes to proof of stake networks, where you're staking one token and receiving more of that token um, in return. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so is it, I mean, just to get an idea, like, is it going to be a situation where basically anybody can come in and be a sequencer just like anybody can be a validator on ETH today, or is it going to be still limited to just a few parties? Um, I mean, does it even matter, honestly? Um, uh, I, th I think it will be limited. Um, and I think basically it's going to look like DAO governance, um, like governance gets to vote on who's part of the sequencer set. Uh, if you look yeah. at Arbitrum, for example, that's like their explicit plan is, um, have like 10 or 12, like allowable sequencers. Right. Um, but the goal here is that like, if you want to get a transaction through and you're being censored and maybe forced transaction inclusion isn't working, at least one of those sequencers will take your transaction but it's still a risk, right? Um, yeah. And it'll probably impact the performance of the system to some degree, right? Because you'll still have right. periods of time when you're switching off from one sequencer to another, right? Um, so um, look, that might be one one sequencer gets days at a time, um, or it might be mm, minutes. I see. So I did, like different kind of models and still semi-centralized, but uh, just moving down the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. With layer twos, it's all about trade-offs, right? Uh, yeah. So, um, so that's that's decentralized sequencing. Um, and then there's kind of a third model of sequencer, which is a, a shared sequencer. Um, mm -hmm. So, if you look at Optimism Superchain, um, their kind of approach here is: look, everyone has to kind of run generally the same software to run their layer twos. So, same virtual machine. Everyone's got to kind of follow the same rules, but if you have that, then you can have all sorts of upsides. And one of them is shared sequencing. Um, theoretically with shared sequencing, like, so the idea is every three seconds or whatever, you're issuing a block for every chain that's being sequenced by that sequencer. So it's one sequencer, multiple chains, and it's running in parallel all of these different processes and it's coming up with blocks, you know, one at a time, but across all of the different chains together. Um, and so that's why you kind of need the chains to be like homogenous, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, in a scalability sense, like, is that not going to make it just kind of very, like, is it not going to run into the same problems as ETH L1 in that situation? Um, it depends on how many you have, uh, yeah. here it's slightly different, right? Because it's a single computer and you're sort of more resource constrained by the by the like physical compute hardware and networking itself which is more of like the the thing that solana plays with right where they talk about like okay i have gigabit internet connection what can i do with that i have 10 gigabits or 100 gigabits what can i do with that how many transactions per second can i do 
you run into like deep down like this silicon level performance question of like how many chains can i really sequence in parallel how many chains can i listen for transactions for in parallel um but uh and so you you do run up on some kind of limit there right where like yeah. one computer cannot run all of this stuff but it gets you something nice which is atomic um composability right so if i have uh if i have usdc on chain a or layer 2a right and i have i want to swap it for a shitcoin on layer 2b um i can bridge it and execute that transaction in one block right um and i can make it so that like i can specify that like this needs to happen at exactly the same height in the block like i need this to be like the first transaction in each of those two blocks or something right um you can specify rules for things like that um this is part of what cosmos 2.0 actually laid out with their um scheduler system um it's it's basically the same thing shared security right because you have one one computer validating everything um and uh and atomic composability right where where chains know about each other because they're all sort of being run on on the same computer at any given point in time um Shared sequencers are good because they tackle liquidity fragmentation, right? So without a shared sequencer, every incremental chain you have, in order to bring assets from one chain to another, you have to go down to the ETH L1. Um, that's painful and expensive and time-consuming, right? Um, but uh, if you have a shared sequencer, then you can actually have that composability across the different L2s because they know each other's state at any point in time. uh you're i think you're on mute yeah classic um yeah okay that makes sense so there i mean we've kind of covered initially how your transaction gets over to the l2 we kind of covered how the blocks get made in the l2 um we have covered a little bit about how um you can actually withdraw your assets like what else is there to really at a high level understand what happens in the interaction between the l1 and the l2 and before we get into like some of the different types um how they work and then you know give some examples yeah um so so i think i think we should uh take a minute to go into a little bit deeper depth on how do you get your transactions or how do you get your assets from the l2 to the l1 how do you get them released to you from that deposit contract right right um right. so there are a couple of approaches here um there's optimistic and zk right yeah. uh and um and basically with optimistic the way it works is you have your blocks being made, right? They all get bundled and they get submitted to the L1 and it says, hey, here's like the new state of the chain. Um, there's some withdrawals I need you to process. Please go ahead and process them. And then you get seven days, right? Okay. And, 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 and is it like, Basically, how are you exactly calling that contract? Is it basically just a withdrawal contract on the L2 that then basically, I'm just trying to understand, like, how does it get that message over to the L1? Uh, yeah, okay. So the sequencer is calling this. Uh, um, I see. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, it can be a different party, but it, it's generally, you can think of it just kind of as the sequencer, right? Um, because and remember the sequencer, the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, remember those transactions that are being sequenced and included in blocks on the L2, they, they don't really mean anything until Ethereum finds out about them. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, so the sequencer, does it, does it technically like live on the L1 or how does that... How does that work exactly? The sequencer is like a computer, right? And it submits transactions to the L1. Yeah. Okay. Um, it also builds up its own blockchain, right? And it distributes the information around the transactions in those blocks using whatever approach it wants. We can, that's like data availability. Um, so it, yeah. it, it listens for transactions. It, it orders them into blocks. It takes all the... It, it basically computes the difference between the state at point A and the state at point B in the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And it submits, um, it's actually kind of interesting. It, it submits basically like a Merkle tree, which we talked mm. about a little bit um, in our proof of reserves episode and yeah. a little bit in our, uh, I think our Bitcoin deep dive too. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the, this Merkle tree, like for, as a quick refresher, um, it's like you have every transaction that was done and you hash each of those transactions. Um, so like down here at the bottom of the tree, that's the widest point, right? It's like Christmas tree. Um, at the bottom of the tree, you have the hashes of every transaction. And then up a level, you have each of the, you know, pairwise, you combine them and hash them, right? So you have hash of transaction one, transaction two, transaction three, and transaction four, et cetera. And you just kind of keep doing that until you hit like the Merkle root um, or the state root. Um, and with that, you can prove you, you can you can improve uh, using a minimum amount or using like a relatively small amount of information that a transaction was included there. For example, a withdrawal transaction, right? Um, and so uh, the so the the tree is being computed and the withdrawal transactions are being sent to the, L, to the L1. And you're saying, look, these withdrawal transactions are done. Um, and they were included in this tree, as you can see. And the tree has all the information around the like change in the state of the, of the L2. Um, and so mm -hmm. you can verify that for yourself. And like, please, um, please issue me the, please withdraw the assets for me now, basically. Um, but it's not quite that simple, and there is room potentially for a malicious sequencer to include some withdrawal transactions that aren't actually valid. Um, it could lie about the state or something. Like there could be, um, you know, like you're you're not actually including all of the trend, all of the data around all of the transactions, um, and there's a little bit of trust involved. And so basically, uh, you need to wait some period of time. Um, in order to release the assets because you don't know if the sequencer is going to maliciously try to release all the assets to itself or something, or, or if Coinbase gets hacked, right, and the sequencer is running some, some code that's written by a bad actor, um, it could submit a transaction, a withdrawal transaction for all of the assets in the deposit contract to some malicious third party, right? Um, mm. And so you have this optimistic setup where it's like, I don't include all the data. I don't include a proof that like every every state transition in this thing is valid. I just kind of tell you what I want to withdraw, 
and um, and someone else can come in and say if they believe otherwise, right? Okay, so somebody can basically just dispute that state if they feel like something is off, but otherwise everything just passes through. Yeah, but you need to wait a period of time for someone to come in and dispute that, right? So that that's a seven yeah. day withdrawal period. <clears throat> Um, and, uh, and so it's optimistic because if everything goes smoothly, it'll, it'll just happen. And if something malicious happens, like someone can, can step in and assert that like, yo, there was fraud here. Like, don't let that happen. Um, so that's called a fraud proof, right? When you submit that dispute. Um, and the end vision of the world for fraud proofs is like pretty cool. It's an interesting security model, right? Because you only need one honest actor in the system to make sure that that no fraud is being committed, um, which is like in theory very efficient, right? Um, it utilizes less gas on Ethereum. It's like way easier to build than a zk system, um, and you only need one honest actor. Um, the The problems are kind of twofold. the The first one, and this is kind of an edge case, but as you think about the world expanding to lots and lots and lots of L2s, the odds that you have one honest actor actually watching each of these things become smaller and smaller. Like there is a chance that something could go wrong, at, at which point your L2 is fucked, right? Because mm. all the users that deposited any assets to this thing are like just totally wrecked, right? Like the assets are gone. Um, they're, someone else has them now. Um, and so that's like, uh, you know, not that's not a great outcome. So as as it scales more and more, like you wind up with this issue of like who's really gonna be watching all these things, right? They they do get a small reward for submitting the fraud proof, um, if there is genuine fraud, but it might not be enough to to incentivize a player at any given point in time to to validate it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the second, and this is much bigger, is that, um, well, I guess there's three issues. The second, and this is much bigger, is that like you have the seven-day withdrawal period. And seven days is a fucking lifetime, right? Yeah. Um, like literally seven minutes can be a breaker, right? Yeah. And so how does that fraud proof actually work in practice? So if somebody disputes something within, like, let's say six days later, right? Um, and it turns out that dispute is valid. Like, does the whole state of the chain get rolled back by six days, or what? What exactly happens then? Um, so the chain itself isn't in, at least in theory, including invalid transactions. Like, it should only be including valid transactions. Really, where the fraud happens is between the chain building blocks. And the submission of those blocks, including the withdrawal transactions, like down, down to Ethereum to, to release the assets, right? Um, so the thing that you're trying to guard against is a malicious transaction that tries to release assets from the withdrawal deposit withdrawal contract, right? Um, hmm. And so, like the um, the the issue is that um, like oh, so okay, so if you you don't really have to rewind a week as long as nothing like as long as nothing invalid is happening like actually on the chain and in general people are kind of tracking the transactions on the chain and so you can see for yourself if like something okay like this was included but it really shouldn't be even allowable by the virtual machine to have someone's you know 
taking assets without having the private keys for them. Like it, it would be an invalid signature effectively. Okay, sure. Um, so, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, this this is this is a question, right? Is like, what you know, what if something is included in the blocks itself? And like, what if, you know, you, you clearly, because of DeFi, like you can't really roll back the chain seven days because all sorts of mayhem happens, you know, people have loans mm-hmm. and shit, right? Um, like, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's kind of, it's kind of tricky, right? Um, so that, that, that is one other issue is that like the potential for rollback is higher. Um, mm-hmm. But in practice, people aren't going to wait seven days. Right, it's between the proposal to withdraw assets and the actual receiving of the assets. In practice, you're going to have market makers and you're going to have third parties coming in and sort of housing that risk for you. Um, and they need to be compensated for it, right? Um, because imagine you have USDC and you're just trying to bridge it from the L2 to the L1. You have it deposited in Aave on the L2 and you aren't getting good enough rates, so you withdraw it and you try to get it out to the L1 so you can deposit it on the L1 where you get better rates. There's opportunity cost for your capital, right? Um, and so waiting seven days, it adds up, right? Um, and, and it compounds. Um, and so that like any period, any period of time where assets are just sitting there not earning yield is a bad thing, right? And you need to be compensated for that. Yeah. In addition, you need to be compensated for the bridge risk or the, you know, the risk that there actually is fraud that like slips through. Right. So, um, and, and then, you know, there's other opportunity costs. Like if there's a good on-chain opportunity, like you're willing to pay a premium to get your assets now versus like waiting seven days, uh, Mm -hmm. missing that chance for something to pump. Um, so, uh, in practice, people use third-party bridges, which kind of fucks the whole system, right? The whole point here is to have like, as close to like mechanical just Ethereum scaling as possible, right? Um, like you can use a third party bridge and just trust it and go to any side chain, right? Um, it's not really like a layer two, right? Um, so, uh, you know, what you wind up having is like a lot of assets tied up in these third party bridges. And as we've seen again and again, those are very risky. Uh, they tend to be targets for hacks because they hold a lot of assets. And um, if your layer two has a lot of assets that you know are backed, quote unquote, backed by third-party bridges, um, that in and of itself can wreak some havoc in DeFi, right? Where like you know people have like curve pools between like Synapse, USDC, and native bridge to USDC, like canonical mm-hmm. USDC. And yeah. those people are wrecked, right? Because like the USD, native USDC is just going to get like fully withdrawn from the pool and the Synapse USDC is worth nothing if Synapse gets hacked, right? Um, mm. And so uh, so that, that can cause a lot of issues too. Um, so, uh, and then there's another issue, which is just that like in general, like fraud proofs are kind of, there's a spectrum of like readiness, right? Uh, with optimism, they don't have fraud proofs at all, right? Which is really silly because if they don't have fraud proofs, they probably shouldn't have a seven-day withdrawal period. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how? I mean, do they have any kind of proofs, or is it just a? Um, I don't know. Like, what exactly happens then? If there's, um, there's a... I think they have an emergency <laughs> break where, like, they or a circuit breaker where, like, 
OP DAO can like issue an emergency order to halt withdrawals um, mm. if something fishy is going on, um, which is not great because maybe you have an honest withdrawal and like it's bundled in with someone's malicious withdrawal and then what, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and it's also centralization risk. And for optimism itself, that that's a bit of like, I think there's legal risk there too, right? Um, because you're going to be classified as some sort of money services something if like you're effectively like a bank right um or like you know some something similar where people are depositing assets and like have to wait to get withdrawals right if you're like a centralized version of that it's not good um so um arbitrum is better they they do have fraud proofs um they for the longest time could only be submitted by the arbitrum DAO, which is like a little bit ridiculous um but uh because they're the same ones that control the sequencer so it's kind of like okay um i have like the guy who's like running the bank and you know deciding how much money that they're willing to give to people that come in to make withdrawals and then i also have the cops and they're run by the same person and so if the bank teller is giving too much cash to someone and they're also running the bank or they're also running the police force they're just probably gonna let them through right yeah yeah um like if the you know that is if like arbitrum dow had like some kind of hack or something right um or Ar mm -hmm. labs um but uh but they're doing better right so uh there was a proposal a few weeks back to um allow for uh anyone in the community to submit fraud proofs or i think it might be like a set of like green lit entities that can submit fraud proofs so at least they're like opening that up, right? Um, and the level of security mm. you gain when you add a second uh, like fraud proof submitter or a third is like a lot, right? It's all way better than having just one. Um, so, um, you know, it doesn't mitigate this like seven day thing that incentivizes people to just use custodial bridges, but um, you know, it, at, at least like they actually have a functional system. Um, and, you know, this is dangerous, right? Because Optimism stack is being used by like real players, right? It's being used by right. base, it's being used by others and people are trusting it with their assets. And um, I don't think it's like super widely known that like this continues to be an issue. Like we were at drinks like a couple months ago and someone at drinks like swore to us that like he knew, <laughs> he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that like Optimism had fraud proofs live. Uh, mm. and then he pointed to the optimism documentation and this is where it gets gaslighty and the optimism documentation describes the end state of the world someday where like a fraud proof can be submitted to blah, blah, blah. He's like, look, a fraud proof can be submitted to blah, blah, blah. And we're like, yeah, but like, it's not live right now. Um, mm -hmm. which is why like you absolutely have to go to like high quality third party resources, like L2 beat, if you really care, L2 beat com. Um, they do great work. Um, I think that's enough on optimistic roll-ups. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're good there. Um, okay, so these are these are most of the components so far. Um, I mean, we talked let's about touch on we should talk about zk, right? Zk roll-ups. Yeah. Okay. Um, so zk is simpler. Um, yeah. So you submit sort of like the so the sequencer. Once more, Sequencer takes in a bunch of transactions from users, it orders them into blocks, it bundles the blocks together, 
and it submits like the change in state on the L2, including withdrawal transactions uh, that it's proposing to to the the verifier contract on Ethereum. And it's also submitting a proof that that is a valid state transition. So it's um, it's basically heavily compressing down to the point where it's like, look, here was the state before, here was the state after, here's a proof that like I can give you a set of transactions that get you there. Um, mm-hmm. Please, you know, and and the difference in states includes like the amount to be withdrawn to each party of each asset. Um, okay. And and so that makes sense. You submit all of those together. It costs you a little more gas, right? Um, and but it but it's much safer because like it, it's just like mathematically guaranteed to be correct. Uh, so you're proactively proving that every single state transition is valid. Um, okay. The uh, the downside is that like well okay so withdrawals take you know on optimistic rollups seven days with zk mm-hmm. like five ten minutes. Um, okay. Which is kind so of big, right. Okay. Uh, so how does the zk rollup work exactly? So for the people that don't know, zk stands for zero knowledge. Um, how how does how does it differ from an optimistic rollup? How does it work? Okay, so with an optimistic rollup, when it when it wants to sort of like settle down to Ethereum, and when I say settle, basically allow withdrawals to happen from yeah. the deposit withdrawal contract, um, it submits a proposal, and then you wait seven days, and if nobody comes up with proof that like that's a fraudulent proposal, then mm-hmm. it just allows it by default. It's optimistic, right? Um, uh, with a zk proof, we're basically saying. Uh, you, you in, instead of instead of making a proposal and then waiting and you know only allowing withdrawals after a certain period of time, you just make a proposal, but you also prove that that's a valid proposal, and so the withdrawals can happen immediately thereafter. Um, so mm-hmm. zero knowledge proofs are are kind of like a form of compression almost, where you lose extraneous data, right? You don't tell it exactly what the transactions are that led to the state being changed from A to B. Um, You compress all of that and you just say, look, here's the state change and here's a mathematical proof that that's valid. Um, And, you know, if the proof is valid and so in in the verifier contract on Ethereum, it has a checker that checks whether or not that proof is valid. Right. So um, when you submit your transaction, you submit your proof, you submit your state change, and this contract checks for you to make sure that like that proof equates to that state change. Right. Um, and so it's, it's like mathematical, right? It, it's, it's mechanical. Got it. It's a bit yeah. like if you think about signature verification, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's easy to check. It's cheap to check. It's hard to compute a signature if you don't have the private keys. Right. Um, but it's easy to verify that someone's signature is, is valid. It sort mm. of like follows that same principle, right? Um, and so the contract on the L1 listens for the sequencer to give it um, the, the state change and the proof and takes those two together It releases the assets. It's a little bit of a simplification, but that's kind of what it does. Okay. You also um, have someone, someone has to compute the proof too, right? And that can be kind of yeah. Expensive. So, um, 
in computing that proof, does it is it like more gas intensive because it's a more complex transaction or more complex just computation? Um, how, how does that work exactly? It's actually compute intensive, like off chain compute. So okay, um, okay, you take all your transactions and you generate a proof based off of them that like one state transition. Uh-huh is valid, right? That state A can go to state B given some set of valid transactions. Uh, Give me like a minified like proof that like this state change is valid. Um, That can be kind of computationally intensive, right? So you basically have to spin up a beefy server on AWS with a bunch of GPUs in order to compute the proof. Um, And who's doing that? Uh, so right now it's whoever runs the L2. So for Polygon ZKVM, Polygon does it. For ZK Sync, ZK Sync does it. There are visions of the world where it's decentralized, um, mm-hmm. but uh, right now it's uh, right now it's just like the labs companies um, doing it. Okay. So it means that operating an L2 for a ZK L2 is more expensive actually than um, operating. Uh, uh, an optimistic rollup, so the, the margins are lower, but they're not that much lower. So zk mm. is like wild. The amount of progress that has been made on zk tech over the last few years is unbelievable. So, mm. um, like mm. at Polygon, we have like the latest version of our prover that we're testing now. You can compute a proof of the validity of all transactions for USDC ever on ETH mainnet for like two grand. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's millions of transactions, right? Yeah. Um, so like the, and, and it's just improving, right? Uh, like people are continuing to invest in research, like the, this field is moving forward pretty quickly. And so as long as the tech continues to evolve, we can handle higher and higher volumes. Um, and, you know, we have things like uh, recursive ZK proofs that can combine proofs for two different L2s. So you can like submit down to that verifier contract. You can submit a proof of Polygon ZKVM and some other ZK L2 and another one, and they can kind of share those gas fees to a degree because they're like constant size proofs. Um, you obviously still need to compute the proofs, but it saves you gas costs. So um, uh, it's it's overall, you know, uh, it, it's it's becoming more and more viable to just fucking prove everything by default and not fuck around with like the, you know, optimistic like game theory of it. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah. Should we talk is there anything you? else? We, yeah, is there anything else we need to know about zk? Uh, like that's separate or like different about zk uh, kind of based uh, rollups, or uh, is that mostly everything? Um, so I think like it's worth quickly talking about data availability here because it has sort yeah. of different implications for optimistic and zk rollups. Um, so data availability, like actually it kind of, I, I, this was part of my crypto hot takes is a bullshit term um, made to, it's like a, you know, a, a VC scam. Um, yeah, yeah. But be that as it may, uh, like it, it's also kind of a real thing. So mm-hmm. um, 
if you think about just think about zk for zk rollups for a second right so mm -hmm. they're 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 sending some data to ethereum they're saying look i have state a it's transitioning to state b and here's a proof that that's a valid state transition right um but it doesn't give you like it doesn't tell ethereum about all of the different transactions that are happening okay someone somewhere would like to have that data right <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so you want to have, in order for users to like trust that like those blocks are actually being made, that your transaction is actually being included, you need to have the data being like posted somewhere for people who are interested to like grab it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that they know like what the, what the transactions are that actually did go lead you from state A to state B or whatever. Um, mm. And they can verify that like theirs was being included. Um, so uh for for zk uh for, for polygon zkvm the way we do this is we just post that data to ethereum using something called call data so mm. quick, quick aside here with ethereum there's a few different ways to include data in or a couple different ways to include data in a transaction one of them is to just store it on chain so this would mm -hmm. be like imagine i make like a, a contract that just has like uh like ens is a great example yeah it's like router contract it says okay i have mat.eth and it resolves to some address right uh -huh. that, yeah that data is kind of stored on chain right mm -hmm. other contracts can see it uh it's visible at like at a contract level so cross-contract communication like you can call it you can see that data okay um, you can also do something called call data this is like a little mm -hmm. bit of a hack right um mm -hmm. where you basically have a function that takes in some input and doesn't really store it on the chain. It might do something with it, or it might do nothing with it, um, but it, it doesn't store it in a contract where like other contracts or other users can like reference it on chain. So where does it get stored exactly? It's kind of just stored in the like history of transactions that are happening, right? So imagine I have like a very minimal data availability function, like all data function, right? that uh, it would look something like this. I have a function and it takes one input and then it returns and that's it, <laughs> right? It, it executes no logic, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So then you can call that function with whatever and anybody that's processing the chain sees that input, right? They see what functions were being called and with what inputs. Um, and so they store that sort of like a full node would have that, right? A full archival node has like every function that was called and all the inputs that were called with that function, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so broadly speaking, anybody that's sort of tracking the Ethereum chain knows that like they, they have that data somewhere in their database under like the call data column, right? But at any point in time, the if you think of Ethereum as like a state machine, right that data is never actually in the machine right so anybody that's just tracking like the current state of ethereum they don't need to know anything about what you know arguments were called in that function because it didn't change anything on the chain right yeah. so if you're just tracking the state of the chain you're like oh some function was called it changed nothing next right um, but if you're tracking like what transactions were called, like if you're running Etherscan or, you know, just any kind of archival node, um, then, then you actually have that data somewhere in your like computer's database. 
Um, mm. So with Ethereum, you pay a lot less for call data than you do for data that actually impacts the chain and gets stored on chain, right? Okay. You, you kind of effectively get charged for, well, you get charged for a few things, but the most expensive one is storing data on chain. You know, it's all relative, but that's, it's, yeah. it's very expensive to store data on chain. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if you, versus like for call data, it's much, much cheaper. So mm. this is kind of the hack that everyone has, has gone to is like, I need to make my data publicly available somewhere, right? I have this blockchain and I want, I need people to know what transactions are happening. I need that sort of like distributed around the world in a peer to peer manner. I can use Ethereum to do that. Everybody's watching Ethereum anyway, right? Um, and so I include all of my transactions as call data to some function in Ethereum that basically does nothing. Um, gotcha. And it's just kind of like a bulletin board, right? It's using Ethereum huh. as a bulletin board for like, by the way, Matt said this, right? Um, and uh, and yeah, so, that's cool. And yeah, and and this is this is going to get even cheaper, right? So under EIP four eight four four, aka proto dank sharding, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can there's going to be something called storage blobs which are more ephemeral than call data right so call data not really strictly necessary to compute the state of the chain at, at any point in time right um but uh or well i guess it's probably necessary because it's an input but you know if you're just tracking the state of the chain it doesn't impact you right um for so for example wallet providers they're just querying the current state current balances for example right um, oh yeah they don't give a shit about call data because it hasn't impacted anyone's balance or anything i see got it um well under eip 4844 what we're basically saying is look people are going to do this right because um effectively if you want to recreate the state of an l2 it's really nice to know that like all you need is the data from ethereum Right, so hmm. if you're using Ethereum to hold your your as your data availability layer as your bulletin board, right, um, you don't you don't need anything else to compute the current state of an L2 other than that, um, which is meaningfully good, right? Um, it it means that you're, the only trust assumptions you're making are the Ethereum trust assumptions, and that's it. Um, so uh, under EIP 4844, there's a, there's a third kind. So we had data that just gets stored on chain. And then we had call data, which is called as part of a function, but doesn't get stored on chain. But it's still part of like the, all, the overall database of all the transactions that have ever happened. It just doesn't go on chain, right? Mm. Um, and then, because uh, the bigger the chain gets, the more expensive it is for everyone to keep track of it. That, that's why, at, at its core, that's why you charge a lot for data storage on chain, right? Um, you don't want it okay. to load to like an infinite size. Um, the state of the chain should be nice and compact. Because um, that's the thing that you have to come to consensus over. Um, so then, uh, then you have uh then you have blobs and so blobs are ephemeral um which bothers me to no end uh, <laughs> uh because i think part of the beauty of blockchains is the permanence right um, yeah and uh and so uh anyway we have these blobs and they stick around for two to three weeks and then people toss them out uh and you just kind of have to listen for the ones that you care about so if you're, you know, if you're like keeping track of the state of Arbitrum, 
you listen for the blobs from Arbitrum, right? Uh, and then you store them in a database or whatever whatever means you need. Um, this is really important for optimistic rollups because in order to submit a fraud proof, you know the the sequencer is effectively going to say, "Hey, I'm going from state A to state B. Uh, somebody proved to me that that's not valid." And the only way right. to do that is to have a set of transactions that are leading to that mm. change, right? Um, and so, uh, so it's absolutely crucial to have good data availability uh, for, mm. for those. It's also important for ZK, but it's much less important um, because like you're proactively submitting a proof every time. And so like, it's kind of like, you know, it's important in the sense of like really, really nice to have, but it's not mm. simply necessary the way it is with optimistic rollups. Um, yeah. A lot of people okay. can use yeah. alternatives here. And so Celestia is a, an example of like- Right, exactly. Board, right? Um, yeah, and, yeah. And this is where the terminology gets a little like touchy. Um, the way that most people are kind of approaching this is you have full on, fully blown rollups, right? So a fully blown rollup, a rollup has to store, has to use Ethereum for data availability, right? Mm -hmm. um, a layer two could use something else. Right, it could use Celestia for data availability. Or if you're like, imagine you're building a blockchain game. Like, why should you fucking post your data to Ethereum? All your users are kind of trusting you anyway to not rug the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So store it in an AWS instance, right? Mm -hmm. um, or store it, you know, pay somebody right to have like replicated copies of it, right? Yeah. Um, go with minimal decentralization. Save yourself the the cost, right? Um, mm -hmm. You can have Celestia, which is still decentralized, but it doesn't inherit Ethereum's like staking set, so it doesn't get the security of Ethereum. But maybe it's more scalable and it's kind of tailored for data availability in particular. So you have that. Um, yeah. But uh, effectively, that's um, and 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 so for a rollup, you have to store your data on Ethereum, or you have to use Ethereum for data availability. Sorry, I keep saying store, but it, but it's really available, right? Because storage. Mm -hmm. It's like on-chain. Um, for data availability, you have to use Ethereum if you're going to call it a rollup. Um, and for an L2, you can use a different data availability layer. Uh, and in the case of ZK rollups, uh, when you're using a different data availability layer, you call it a validium. Okay. Because you're see. posting validity proofs that like the state transition is valid um, every single time. Uh, so you call it like a validium is the is the this mm, is okay. uh, this is fucking also controversial though uh, because the Ethereum Foundation as of like this month has updated their terminology and they're saying any L2 has to use Ethereum for data availability because they kind of wow. want to encourage that because you know frankly Ethereum doesn't like gain a lot of uh, of usage from L2s right it's just like the interactions on the deposit withdrawal contract, which could just be sticky. You bridge to Arbitrum, you never bridge back, or you bridge back in 10 years or whatever. Um, and then it's the interactions with the, the verifier contract, right? Um, and that's kind of it if you don't use it for data availability. So Ethereum would really like to capture some of that activity. And so they're encouraging the usage of Ethereum as the data availability layer. Um, mm. The uh, look, the, the problem that I have here with this is that like under the blob situation, 
it still costs like 90% less than, um, than call data, which costs a lot, lot less than actually storing the data on chain. So it's not like there's a lot of fees being paid to Ethereum stakers regardless, right? Right. Um, and Ethereum is just a bit like decentralized to a fault on this front where like they've committed so hard to this layer two vision of the world um, and they don't really gain a lot of value from it. Mm. Right? And, and even I see. 4844, like they, re they have to compete with Celestia, so it has to be really cheap, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's just a tricky spot. So I think like the best case you can make for Ether the asset gaining value from L2s is its use as sort of like the de facto monetary standard, right? So mm. fees are generally paid in ETH because sequencers, you know, think about the sequencer business. They take in gas fees and then they have to pay expenses on the ETH L1. So they'd really like to denominate that in, in the same currency, right? Um, so generally, Ether is used as the gas token on most L2s. I think all, all popular L2s today. Uh, and... Um, with the exception of maybe like DYDX, right? Uh, mm. And um, and that's kind of it, right? I really think that that's the primary way that Ethereum or Ether the asset like derives value. It was definitely not okay. paid to validate. Right, right. Um, okay. And like in terms of actual usage right now, like so, just every everybody is eventually gonna have to move to posting, uh, uh, like basically using Ethereum as data availability. But like right now, what is the current state of the world? Like, do most people use Celestia? Do most people not post their data anywhere? Like, is that possible? Uh, uh, generally, people are doing it with call data. <laughs> Right. Um, so that is kind of what's happening already. Yeah. Uh, and where I think we're going to go is the Ethereum Foundation describes an L2 as being one thing, right? Mm -hmm. And the world might define it slightly differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because Celestia, I don't think they've even launched Testnet yet. Um, and so it's going to... It's going to take a little while before they become like the uh, a really viable data availability layer. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, like right now, right now everything is is using Ethereum as the data availability layer. Okay. It's kind of an interesting thing because, like, boy, should I care about this, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I am the most primed to care about where the data availability layer is out of anyone, really. Like, mm -hmm. I'm a purist. I love fucking mm -hmm. love Ethereum. The fact that they're even switching to blobs bothers me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet, I don't really care. <laughs> um, Why is that? Uh, because the levels of centralization already present in all this shit are so high anyway that mm -hmm. the level of centralization of your data availability layer doesn't really make an impact, I don't think, on the yeah. safety of the system makes sense um okay all right final couple things what else do we need to touch on here um i feel like we covered most most of the components um let's actually touch on the different kind of uh l2s that are notable and like how they differ what kind of categories they fall into so it's like the should we go to l2b buckets go yeah sure yeah yeah um the 
basically the buckets you can put them into? Is it basically just optimistic and ZK rollups, or is it like are there other uh, categories that you can kind of uh, you know use as a as a way to think about these or um, yeah yeah so, how, how, how you think about it? So L two beat uses kind of the standard nomenclature of a rollup needing to have data availability on Ethereum. Um, okay. And uh, if you don't have that, it classifies you as either a Validium if you're ZK or an Optimium if you're an optimistic <laughs> L2. Um, uh, so I think, I think those are kind of the categories. And then there's also kind of ecosystems or like tech stacks, right? Um, yeah. I guess there's also, there, there's also, we could, okay, we'll take literally 45 seconds. There are different types of virtual machine, right? So mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need to have the EVM as your virtual machine for your layer two. All you need is something that can be like checked by the verifier contract to make sure that like withdrawals are, are being processed like correctly. So mm. if you can have a verifier contract that verifies some other shit, um, then, you know, feel free to go wild. You can have whatever language, whatever virtual machine you want. Um, within the EVM though, uh, you can have different kinds of like ZK EVM. You can have type one, type two, type three. Generally, this just resembles how close it is to Ethereum. So type one is like, I can literally prove Ethereum using my prover, right? And I can verify Ethereum blocks using my verifier contract. Like it's fully just like Ethereum. Ethereum, unfortunately, wasn't designed with ZK in mind. And so there are certain elements that are just harder to code ZK circuits for, or they take up a lot of gas when you verify them. Um, and so in, in general, like we haven't gotten there yet. Um, so one step down the line is type two, where, uh, like you can verify most solidity bytecode or most EVM bytecode. Um, and maybe you can even have different languages that compile down to EVM bytecode. Um, okay. and they generally run very closely to Ethereum. Uh, type three is more like, and this is where like ZK sync is, um, they take your solidity and they compile it down to some other shit, right? So you still use solidity, but the, the bytecode of your contract is actually totally different um, mm -hmm. or a little different at least. And so people feel like it's not as safe because part of the nice thing about EVM is you get your contract audited once for Ethereum and you can deploy it to Polygon, to Avalanche, to any EVM compatible chain. You know you're going to get the same output bytecode, right? Um, so type three is like a little bit worse. Um, and then there's like non EVM stuff, right? So there's some that use privacy preserving stuff. There's some that are optimized for other things like uh, DYDX uses a completely different virtual machine. It uses the Cairo VM and you write your contracts in Cairo, right? Um, that that's DYDX V3, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so those are kind of like the different types. Um, okay. Um, all right. It makes sense. So going to L2 beat. Let's take a quick look just at like by TVL, right? Yeah. Um, so let's, yeah, let's just go down the list. So number one is Arbitrum, um, optimistic rollup. Number two is OP mainnet. So optimism, obviously optimistic rollup. Uh, number three is base, uh, optimistic rollup. 
Um, this is based on the OP stack, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, that basically, what what does that mean exactly that it's based on the OP stack? So uh, OP stack is like, it's like Cosmos SDK, right? It's like, yeah. um, it's like code that you, you forked to start your own layer two. <laughs> and you can basically just use all of their, like, what, what does that mean exactly? Like, because you're still running your own sequencer. Um, but what part of the code are you copying exactly? You're just taking all the code and running it. Okay. Uh, fair. Um, yeah, it's it's literally like copy pasta, um, you know, sushi swap and and like pancake swap and and Uniswap, right? Um, you just copy the code and run it yourself. Um, yes. you, can, you can adjust whichever parts you want as well, right? Um, uh, okay. So um okay and then it doesn't really have a vision of this so op stack like you can just fully freely copy it and do whatever you want right um and if you're kind like coinbase's you'll pass some of those sequencer fees onto optimism DAO, and they'll use it for public goods funding with arbitrum they have it a little more locked down so uh they don't let you just like freely copy the code base right they uh you have to submit a proposal to the arbitrum DAO. Um, and they will decide whether or not they will let you run an L2 with their code base. But you can freely run an L3 using a very similar code base. And this is like huh. Arbitrum Orbit is like the refers to the collective of these things. Um, that's its own that's its own thing. I I think uh, I think generally this is problematic because if you fork Arbitrum, you have a seven day waiting period to bring your assets down to our, to the L2 from your L3. And then, um, wow. you have waiting period I'm seven days. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's brutal. Uh, and so they haven't really seen much pickup there. Um, you know, it might be a case of just like trying to control the ecosystem too much. Right. Um, where do you monetize? Where do you give things away? It's, it's, a it's always a spectrum. Um, Anyway, so base is built on OP stock, right? Um, and this is, you know, very, very successful strategy on Optimism's part to make their tech mainstream. Um, and then the vision is someday they'll have this super chain shared sequencer that shares in the sequencing revenues from every chain in the super chain. And those chains all have to be built using OP stock. So the more chains that are built using OP stock, the higher likelihood that an incremental chain gets added to the super chain and that represents some amount of future revenue for OP stakers uh, once yeah. they realize the sequencer. That's mm. like the the idea. Okay. Um, okay. And then from there, we have ZK Sync era, uh, ZK Rollup, then DYDX, which is built on StarkX, um, which is made by, or, or yeah, that is made by the people that made StarkNet. Um, those are five and six, both ZK rollups, then immutable X, which is validium. So I guess still ZK rollup, but does not post, um, transaction data to Ethereum, I guess. That's the idea, but they're, um, they're, uh, changing, right? So they're going to use, so Polygon is doing oh, the they're same going thing. Over Polygon. Yeah, yeah. Polygon is doing the same thing as optimism here. Um, and it's like, uh, I don't think it's super widely known because may maybe there's 200 people in the world that care <laughs> uh, and they're all our listeners, but, um, 
we have Polygon CDK, Chain Development Kit, right? And this is like OP stack, but Polygon's version of it. And it's the same thing. Copy pasta, launch your own ZK chain, right? Um, it gives you some ability to like integrate with our like, we talked a little bit about like, you can aggregate proofs together. We'll, we'll do a Polygon deep dive later. Um, and it also gets you some shared liquidity, right? So there's advantages of building within the Polygon tech stack as well. Um, and IMX is transitioning mm -hmm. to that. So nice. um, yeah. that's, that's super hype. Uh, and so all of these Polygon like super chains uh, will be ZK based? Yeah, they'll all be ZK. Some of them will be ZK rollups and some of them will be Validiums. Um, mm. which, yeah, okay. like you said, they, they post ZK proofs, but they don't necessarily, they don't post data to Ethereum as the data availability. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we have multiple options for that actually. Um, nice. it's hyped. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Then we have mantle, um, and like just to get an estimate, like Arbitrum has 5.6 billion TVL, OP mainnet, like 2.5 base. 500 million, ZK Sync 400 million, DYDX 300 million, and then StarkNet 140, Immutable 100, Mantle 87 million, uh, then Loopering 83 million, ZK Sync Lite, which, what what is that exactly? That's um, 72 million. I'm unclear uh, on okay. that, actually. Yeah. Um, okay, and then there's Metis. Uh, Metis, Metallic's mom. Yeah, is, uh... Metallic's mom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that his mom has a roll up. Um, <laughs> no, I think she like works on the foundation or something. Um, I met a couple of really nice people that work at Metis. Uh, shout out really? for listening. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice. Last year. Uh, uh, and then Linea, 53 million. Polygon ZKVM, 41 million. And then it, it kind of tails off. Um, I don't know what that is. Um, yeah, I, there's a few I don't really know about. Um, the network's still around. Interesting. Yeah, wow, interesting. Um, um, notable here is Aztec. They were originally like a ZK ZK rollup, so it was like a ZK rollup that also used ZK for privacy, um, mm. as opposed to like in addition to like scalability. And uh, I think they are shutting down, but they still have quite a bit of TVL on this website. So I don't know. Mm. Um, what is um, what is mantle? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I keep hearing about it. I know it's uh, launched recently, and they just launched their own token and everything. Um, I just keep hearing about it, but I don't really know what it is. It kind of just looks like going on their website now. It kind of just looks like an a general purpose. EVM, like optimistic rollup. Uh, mm -hmm. Mantle LSD, enhancing the capital efficiency of ETH through decentralized staking services. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's for staking. I don't know. Uh. Um, mass adoption of token governed technologies. There, there's a few red flags on this website, right? Because then you scroll down. <laughs> I mean, that's a red flag. Mass adoption of token governed technologies, but. Uh, and then Mantle Season Alpha, Mantle Journey, 20 million MNT reward pool. Earn miles now. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, if any of our listeners knows anything, hit us up in our in our Telegram chat. Um, I'd yeah, come through to the Telegram. 
Um, okay. All right. Is there anything else we need to hit here? I think we've covered most most everything. I guess we'll close off with the with oh, the other. Oh, there's big something question. really important, or not really important, but just a fucking mind exper- experiment, right? Thought experiment. Yeah. Yeah. What about lightning? What about the lightning network? Um, yeah. Uh, to like, our four listeners that know what that is. Yeah, and, the, and zero of them that are listening an hour and a half into the episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what about the Lightning Network? The Lightning Network is kind of a layer two, right? Mm-hmm. It's a deposit and a withdrawal, and there's some kind of verification happening. Um, if you had to classify it, like, first of all, do you think we can apply this label to, to the Lightning Network? Is, is it a Bitcoin L2? I mean, I guess by the definition of the other L2s on Ethereum, it is, it acts like another L2, right? Like it posts some data, some like semi, I guess, like proofs to the L1 uh, while creating these state channels in a different environment um, that has its own, I guess, settlement. Um, So... I guess in that definition, it is an L two. Yeah, um, I, I think I think so too. Um, so here's how I would describe it using L two words, right? Um, if you think about the the Lightning Network, um, each channel is kind of its own L two, right? Um, mm. So you and I open a channel, and we can send each other some Bitcoin or whatever, and we settle up eventually. Um, we uh there's a decentralized sequencer going on here where Mm -hmm. either of us can submit a transaction at any point in time right you can't really have that with optimism or arbitrum or or zk sync or polygon right um because it would be fucking chaos right you can't just have everybody able to submit um or just to be the sequencer at any point in time right that you would get forks and like the state would be completely unrecognizable like 10 transactions in right um but with lightning network uh like because there's only two participants at a time you can kind of track that Right, like you, you actually can. It, it can be tractable to have like a decentralized sequencer of, of sorts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it's a little bit like an optimistic rollup. It actually is kind of an optimistic rollup if you think about it. Um, yeah. When you submit your transaction to withdraw Bitcoin from the channel, there's a waiting period, and someone else can. Oh yeah. With a with a fraud proof, right? With a proof that yeah. like no, 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 like you're not allowed to take that much Bitcoin out of the channel because you actually sent me so much, you know, you sent me more than that or like I have the right to take out even more than that, right? And so um, at any point in time, like like that, that's the, that's the protection mechanism of Lightning is like you have these like time-locked contracts effectively and um, and if you can prove that like, you have the right to actually take more Bitcoin out than the other person, um, or you know you have the right to so much Bitcoin that the other person's transaction is invalid, then you get to take your Bitcoin out and, and their fraud is proven wrong. Um, mm. And so it is kind of an optimistic rollup uh, yeah. for decentralized sequencer. Yeah, it is in a way. Um, yeah, lightning. 
never picked up, but uh, they were very early on um, on L2s, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess now Bitcoin transactions are not even that expensive and they happen very infrequently, so people don't really care. Um, for now. <laughs> yeah, for now, for now. Um, all right. You got anything else on this, Matt? Um, no, I, th- I think we like really went through it. Um, I guess, uh, yeah. Uh, just a quick shout out. Like, um, I'm really enjoying our uh, Telegram channel. Um, oh yeah. I like. I probably should said this at the start of the episode. Like, shout out to all the homies in there. Like, there's great discussion. Mm-hmm. There's great questions. There's just a ton of GMs. Uh, yeah. and it's like, it's sparking a lot of joy for me in my life. So I, I just it's a great channel. Come through if you're not in it already. Um, we got notes, some yeah. good, yeah, we got some good people in there. It'll be in the show notes. Well, this has been the L2 episode. Uh, it's good to be back. We'll be back later in the week with, I don't know, maybe a recap, maybe on the deep dive. we got a lot to, to get into. So, uh, see you then. And until next time. Stay decent.